Hello and welcome to another episode of the EMG podcast. My name is Sam Boyassi. I'm the head of publishing at the European Medical Group. And today we're in Slough at the Ibsen offices. And I'm joined by Asad Mohsin Ali, who is the managing director of UK Ireland Global Hub. Hi, Asad. Sen, lovely to see you again. How are you? You too. I'm very good. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Thanks. Thanks for having us in your offices as well. A pleasure to have you here. Awesome. So, Asad, obviously, you and I have spoken a few times before. We've worked when I was in my old company as well, and we've interviewed you before at the European Medical Group as well. So we want to really have an opportunity to tell our audience and our listeners a bit more about your background within the pharmaceutical industry prior to that as well. But to start off with, you've got a background in business and banking. So can you maybe tell us how that prepared you for your career in the pharmaceutical industry? Yes, and so going into uni, I was... In, in many ways following my, my father's footsteps and doing economics and, and finance and, and commerce and then uh, getting some work experience. Um, in fact, the first work experience I got in between my, my bachelor's and, and my MBA was at Roche. Mm. Um, so kind of that was my first um, exposure. It wasn't mm-hmm. in their pharmaceutical business. It was more in their consumer health business okay. when they did have one at the time. I think it was on a nappy rash ointment. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, to be specific, so so that was quite quite interesting, right? Because that's kind of my one of my first ever business um, experiences, and then went on to do my MBA, and after and and then other internships as well in in banking, as you've said, and my first job after my MBA was supposed to be with a bank, um, and I think I was leaving um, I was leaving my house still with my parents at the time. Um, for my final interview with the bank, but it was looking pretty good, so I was quite confident, and the phone rang. No one else was home, so I went back in to answer the phone, and it was uh, a person from a pharmaceutical company saying that they'd noticed my profile in my university's graduate directory, Mm -hmm. and um, they were just starting a new graduate uh, program for MBA students, and if I'd be interested. And I knew very little about the pharmaceutical industry other than, you know, what I've mentioned. But just, you know, in my 20s, open to many things. And I said, yes, of course, I'll, you know, come and see what it's all about. And I went uh, a few days later. I think there were about 40 or 50 people. And we went through, you know, different um, assessments, tests. and, And that was whittled down to about 10 people and then the 10 of us were put through pretty intensive um, assessment. In fact, I remember one of the panels, I was sitting in a chair and there were literally half a dozen senior managers sitting in a semicircle around me, asking me all kinds of questions. And I guess maybe for some people that could have been pretty intimidating, Mm -hmm. uh, pretty early on or not Mm -hmm. even early on in your career. I found it really refreshing and challenging and kind of that sparring in a way and asking them questions and they were asking me and kind of I was learning from them. That was my first exposure. So what are you actually doing in pharmaceuticals? What kind of value are you adding? How do you know you're being successful and, you know, just absorbing everything as well. So kind of, I guess they were assessing me, but I was also assessing Absolutely. And then out of the 10 people, they shot, uh, they kind of selected three and I was one of the three. And by that time I was so engaged and so energized that I went back and apologized to the bank (laughs) and said no. And ended up um, with a pharmaceutical company, which uh, in the industry where I've been for the last 21 years. And do you remember that moment where, of course, you kind of went into it at first in the way that you described? But do you remember the moment where you realised this is the industry that I'm supposed to be working in, and this is where I see myself in in the future? Do you remember? Was there a moment like that, or is it just something that grew on you as you as you worked in the industry? I knew. 
I remember the moment where where I was really clear what I didn't want to do, which is where we also had companies coming uh, and presenting at where I did my MBA from. And mm-hmm. for example, um, I can't remember who it was, Philip Morris mm-hmm. or BAT, one of the big ones came over. And I remember that moment where everyone was asking, so what is it like in, in tobacco? And and I think I was the only one in, in my class who put his hand up and I said, what about the ethical issues? and she was. She, I don't think she was expecting that. Although it's a yeah. fairly obvious question, yeah. <laughs> and she was like, um, "Excuse me." I was like, "What about the ethical issues of of, of selling tobacco, of, of of being in the industry?" And she's like, "Well, you know, there's no clear cut evidence." <laughs> was, was the answer. So I remember that moment really well, and it being a r- little bit, you know, uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and for but coming back to your question in pharmaceuticals, I do remember a discussion within that, you know, when I was in that room with the semicircle around me, Ralph Nader's came, uh, name came up. And for, if, you, if you don't know, back in the 1980s or 1990s, uh, Ralph Nader was a big consumer rights advocate um, mm-hmm. in the US. And I think, uh, I can't remember exactly what, but there was a lot of debate at the time on the practices of pharmaceutical companies and I think he was one of the people who really sparked some of that transformation in the pharmaceutical industry to move away from some of our outdated techniques, outdated practices. So I think that was really inspiring to me at that time. This was 1997, 98, where I was like, this industry is not going to stay the way it is. Mm-hmm. It's it's going to change. It's going to be in flux. It's going to transform. And that makes it really really exciting. So Mm -hmm. I think, I don't know how much it has actually transformed over Mm -hmm. the last 21 years. Mm -hmm. I think there is a lot more transformation to be done. But yeah, that that moment was was one of the ones I, I do remember. Nice. And you've obviously held various roles in your time within the industry and you've worked in various regions and countries. What would you say have been some of the consistent themes and challenges that you've found that span across these different areas regarding market access? Probably one of the most consistent challenges has been one of reputation. The pharmaceutical industry does have a certain reputation with, I'm talking about reputation with the wider public, with people who are not that familiar with what is the industry all about and what do we do and how do we add value. And yeah, regardless of where you are in the world, generally the reputation People can be a little bit suspicious, people can be a little bit cynical, and that does come across in some of the challenges that my industry has in terms of always having to demonstrate the value that we're adding and trying to get across how we're actually helping society, how we're helping the economy, how we're helping patients and the overall healthcare system. So that, that's something, whether you're in a developed country, whether you're in a developing country, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes that reputational aspect is, you can see that as, as being quite consistent. That really feeds in very nicely into my next question, actually, which is what, what different considerations do you believe the industry needs to have when working with developed countries compared with developing countries? I think that's a great question. I think what is the similar rather than what's different is is the value that we are adding. And how do we demonstrate that value to whether we are discussing a new expensive treatment with the NHS mm-hmm. 
versus when in previous roles a company has been dis discussing, for example, um, a malaria treatment uh, in Africa. Uh, the value needs to be clear. How you then partner with the local players on, on the ground can be different, yes, between different countries. So I think, as, as your question suggests, those kinds of partnerships are, of course, different in developed countries versus developing countries. Mm -hmm. But even within developed countries, it depends on the healthcare system. Uh, you can have a very centralized healthcare system like you have in the UK or in the Nordics. Whereas it's quite, you know, decentralized relatively in, in Germany or, you know, other European markets. And similarly, in, in developing countries, it depends on the government's agenda. It, de it depends on the focus of public healthcare spend, uh, for example, in, in, in the overall GDP of the country. So I, I would recommend looking at a really broad view, taking a really broad view, mm -hmm. um, a macro view. Of, of what's happening, what are the priorities of the government, education versus military, mm -hmm. versus healthcare, versus prevention, and then tailoring how we partner, you know, with that, filtering down from that macro view to a more kind of, if you think of it as a funnel coming yeah. down to your specific disease area and your medicine and where you're trying to add value. But if you, if you go in just blind and say, this is my medicine, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, <laughs> and definitely you should be allocating more funding towards this, mm -hmm. that approach is never going to work. Absolutely. Very nicely summarized. And back to kind of your style and, and you obviously having been in leadership positions within the industry for a while now, what do you think are the most important traits of a leader within the pharma industry in particular? And, and, and then further on to that, how do you think that differs in different sectors? That's a great question. I think I think a pharma leader, and I'm not sure if this is different for for leaders across sectors. Uh, I mean, I don't know. The first thing that comes to mind is a pharma leader has to be really open to change. Mm. Not just open to change, but instigating change, driving transformation is what I was referring to from 20 years ago, right? When I saw that this industry really has the opportunity mm -hmm. to transform and and grow and, and really make an even bigger difference to the healthcare system and, and, and this industry has. Just taking the example of cancer mm -hmm. and what's been happening with, with um, cancer treatments over the last 20-25 years and the diagnosis, the cancer diagnosis or the prognosis that happens with different types of solid tumors and liquid cancers now it's completely different to what it was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. We're in a much, much better position. There is there is a long way to go, but we've transformed cancer, mm -hmm. I think, working with, with different partners, working with the, with the cancer community, working with academic and, and clinical um, professionals. So I think the pharma leader has to be open to change, has to see the opportunities to add value to the system, has to see the opportunities to keep transforming and not being static and not just assuming that yeah. something that's always worked, yeah. things just have to keep working that way. And how does that differ to other sectors? I don't know if it does, because apply it to the car industry. Mm -hmm. I think you'll, you'll see mm -hmm. the necessity for transformation and innovation Absolutely. in the car industry, or you could apply it to, I don't know, pick, pick an industry. Um, let's, say, let's say the legal industry. 
don't know, or the finance industry. But no. I guess it's, yeah. it's true. Banking. Though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You look at all those disruptors now and, and the way that the industry needs to keep up with that and keep innovating and changing and have an open mind to those. Yeah. Or you just buy those companies and you let them do that for yes. you, I guess, is another Or approach. you have it forced upon you the way the banking and financial industry had it forced upon them in the mid-2000s. Absolutely, absolutely. So what motivated you to take up the position here at Ibsen as the managing director? We are celebrating our 90th anniversary at Ibsen, which is quite remarkable for a small to mid-sized company. And when I say small to mid-sized, we're about five and a half thousand people Mm -hmm. globally. And so 90 years without, as you were saying earlier, without an acquisition or, you know, a merger and, you know, of of the Ibsen name, I think is quite remarkable. And and the company Ibsen has added tremendous value over over the last 90 years. More recently, we've really ramped up our appetite to make a difference globally, not just in Europe, but in North America, in Latin America, in Japan, in Mm. China, in Australasia. And so we're at a point in Ibsen's life where we're really focusing on our global impact and continuing to really make a, a difference across the three therapy areas that we focus on, which are oncology, neuroscience, and rare diseases. And I could really see this appetite. I could really see this transformation Mm -hmm. when I was uh, in discussions regarding this opportunity uh, just over a year ago. And I was sold on that. And I was, if, if I can see the opportunity where I can be in a role where I can not just add value, Mm -hmm. but also be part of a transformation. And that transformation is not only for the company itself, but can have an impact on the wider pharmaceutical industry and the healthcare systems. Mm -hmm. I'll be always up for an opportunity like that. Mm -hmm. And for me then, I don't know if it's the icing on the cake or how you would phrase it, then of course, the other aspect that's really important is is the culture. Mm. And the culture is determined a lot by the kind of people you're working with, kind of bosses you have Mm -hmm. and the culture at Epson was definitely one I wanted to join and keep developing and, and be part of. Great. And, and Ibsen has a vision to be the leading global biotech focused on innovation and specialty care. But are there any key initiatives that you can tell us about that are currently taking place in this space? We recently acquired a, Canadian, a small Canadian biotech com- company called Clementia, okay. which is now fully part of, of Ibsen. And they've been developing a drug in a very rare disease. And this is a disease which I had never heard of before mm-hmm. joining Ibsen. It's caused by predominantly by a genetic mutation that isn't hereditary. Okay. So you can't predict who's going to get this disease. And it has certain indicators or markers when the baby is born, which people may not be aware of. So what happens in a child or an adult with this disease, they literally can start growing an exoskeleton. Mm. Um, and obviously, if you have an extra bone growing on your body you can imagine how devastating that is most people with this with this disease do not live past the age of 40 and the primary cause of death in this disease is the extra bone around your thoracic area Mm -hmm. your your rib cage which which literally prevents you from breathing and 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 that's one of the unfortunately one of the primary reasons for death and the company that we acquired earlier this year has been doing a lot of research and development in this area. And so that's what we mean by being a leading global biotech in innovation and specialty care. This disease is highly specialized. Mm -hmm. 
there are literally no other treatments for it mm -hmm. other than palliative care. So for Ibsen to take this bold step in, in this ultra rare area and to be able to work with the community, it's a very small but growing community, to add value, I think will definitely be a you know big a contribution to us being a global biotech focused on innovation and specialty care. I, I, I'm sorry, I, this answer was very long and I could go on and on no. and on, but it's it's something which is which is really meaningful. I, th I think absolutely in this context. sounds incredible. Do you know? Do you roughly know how many people are affected by that disease? Very small. So globally, we have estimated just based on the epidemiology about nine thousand. Wow. But that's theoretical, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. Actually having identified it, because you can imagine in a, in a lot of developing countries, yes. you have no idea what mm. this is. And, you know, the person unfortunately has a miserable life and, and, and dies. Um, in the UK, we estimate just based on the epidemiology uh, between 60 to 90 patients. So okay. very, very small population. Okay. Mm. Uh, luckily in the UK and in other developed markets, a lot of these patients have actually been physically identified within the healthcare system, mm -hmm. which is great news. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean we can actually do something, but at yeah. least we've identified those patients. So I'm, you know, it's one of my top priorities. Really excited and privileged, I, I think, to be to be working um, in this space. Absolutely. And the final questions that we've got for you is: um, Do you have any other ambitions or goals that you'd like to achieve within your while you're working in the pharmaceutical industry, or be that at Ibsen? Well, personal ambitions, definitely. I'd like to be much better at sport. I wish I'd played more cricket. I haven't taken up golf yet. So, I, you know, yeah. So every time I have a meeting, which is like next to a golf course, and people are talking yes. about playing a game of golf, I'm like, hmm, that would be good. Professionally, I, I don't have ambitions. I don't have ambitions in terms of my career professionally or what jobs I'd like to do next. The ambition I have is to make, sorry if it sounds a bit cheesy, is to make a bigger difference to healthcare systems globally. And I guess what I would be really ambitious to do, and I'm not sure how successful I've been, is to really act as a catalyst in the transformation of the pharmaceutical industry. That's, that's something I'm still as passionate about as I was in that assessment center mm -hmm. 21, 22 years ago. So, yeah, and I think I'll continue to be ambitious about making a tangible difference and really acting as a catalyst and helping the pharmaceutical industry evolve and transform and add values in ways that it hasn't before. Mm. So, I, I'm sorry, it doesn't directly answer your question. That's, that's how I think in terms of my my ambitions. You did say something very interesting there, and I'm sorry I lied when I said it was the last question because I, I'm going to ask another one now. You said something around you don't have ambitions in terms of the job and the job title, etc. Was there was there a point? So I'm just thinking about this in terms of someone listening who is starting off their career within the pharmaceutical industry, and they might you know aspire to be in a similar position as to the one that you are in right now in the future. Was was that always the case, or in terms of not really having a specific job title or function within the pharma industry in mind that you wanted to work in, or was there kind of early on like steps that you in little boxes that you wanted to tick to help you get to where you are, or was it just kind of a, a journey that just naturally formed itself? I would be lying if I'd said <laughs> if I hadn't had definitely a list of boxes I'd wanted to take, if I hadn't had a list of roles I'd always wanted to do. And I was also very lucky and very privileged that I was given many, many different opportunities, you know, in different countries 
to grow and develop and make mistakes, learn from my mistakes and be able to add even more value in my next role. At a certain stage in my career, started to be less important. My next step started to be less important. Mm. And I really started taking more pleasure and more satisfaction from the value that I could add to my customers, to my team. Mm-hmm. Developing my team is a, is a big focus for me. Attracting, retaining, developing talent is a big focus for me. It's a big focus for Epson. So I think to answer your question, I definitely evolved over the last couple of decades. And in terms of my advice, someone starting out would be to, of course, if you, if you have the checklist and you have the ambitions and you have the job titles, go for them. Of course, I don't want to dampen anyone's ambition. But the only thing I'd say is also just ask yourself every day, how am I adding value? Mm. And how do I know that I'm adding value to my customers, to the people I'm working with, to the society in, in general? And if, if someone can ask themselves that question in whatever job they do on a daily basis, over time, I think they will train themselves to to actually be able to add, add more value. Absolutely. That's a great way to end as well, I think. But thank you so much for taking the time to, to do this podcast with us today. I'd really appreciate it. Some really insightful views there as well. Thank you for the opportunity, Sen, and great seeing you again. You too. Thank you.
But yes, that is all we've got time for today. Please do make sure that you subscribe to our gold magazine on www.emg-gold.com, especially if you found this interview quite interesting with Assad. Uh, we do have a lot of content on gold where we interview various other industry experts as well. We did actually have a video interview with Assad uh, last year that we recorded, so you can definitely find that on our YouTube account as well if you're interested. But yeah, that's all we've got time for today. Thanks again for listening and join us again next week for another episode.